whanau mai whakarongo mai te whanau o te kona ipurangi nei, tu tāne, ko apa wātine uh, tōku ingoa. Uh, welcome back uh, to the Family of the Becoming Tāne podcast. My name is Apa Wātine. This is the final episode, episode 8 of the first season of the Becoming Tāne podcast. This season was based in the Waikato Rohe. In this season, we have shared some amazing stories that will help grow great guys. As I mentioned last week, we'll be having a short break of two weeks between seasons. The next season will be in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, and we'll look to drop episode one of season two on September 21st. Today's episode, we talked to Nick Reed. Nick has a great story to share. The title of today's episode is... I love you bro and I'm proud of you. Before we talk to Nick, let me give you a brief introduction. Nick was born in Fakatani. He has six siblings. He is the middle child. He went to Tohara Primary School and then when he left Fakatani, moved to Hamilton, he attended Fairfield College. He eventually went to Wintech where he studied and received a Bachelor in Sports and Exercise Science. He also attended Waikato University where he received a certificate in leadership and he is currently studying towards an MBA. His work history is he's been a professional rugby league player, personal trainer, strength and conditioning trainer, a development officer for the New Zealand Rugby League, a boarding tutor, a youth mentor and his current position is the health and fitness manager at Waikato University. He is married and he is expecting his first child in October of this year. Kia ora Nick, ngā mihi ki a koe, e te whakawhiti kōrero e tēnei rā. Hi Nick, thank you for speaking with me today. Hey, kia ora apa and uh, and thank you for welcoming me onto the the podcast. It's it's my um, privilege to be here. I believe that we are who we are because of the sum of the life experiences that we have. So the first question is, what two events in your life has had the greatest impact on you? I'll try and point out a good and a bad one. I believe that many of our bad or traumatic adversities uh, that we go through actually lead to some of the greatest lessons in life. And the first one was uh, was an event um, which also culminated with, with one of the biggest decisions I've ever made. Uh, and that was as a 14-year-old deciding to, to raise myself, essentially. I got into a, a big uh, disagreement with my mother and by this stage we were in a, a single single parent household without sort of going into too much detail. She was crossing some values of mine and we had a massive breakdown at that point. And I, I made the decision at 14 to leave home. I moved in with my friends and their parents and they fostered me until I was 16 and became an independent youth. But that decision to raise myself really set about a huge amount of flow-on effects actually around my sense of independence. So I built a strong sense of independence from that point uh, that helped shape my life. And I realized from that point on that that if I wanted anything in life, I would be depending on myself to get it and uh, and have since worked as hard as I can to to chase whatever it is that I, I want. One of the, the other things that sort of helped shape me um, massively in terms of events is the marriage to my wife. Like a, a lot of young Māori men who had suffered some traumas, was a, a pretty angry young man and often used it as motivation to fuel me. 
and that became a little bit more and more difficult when I met my partner because I, I found that I wasn't so alone in the world and that I could be um, authentically me and I could be at home and vulnerable around her. And being married and, and making that commitment means that I get to experience this world with somebody else. And so uh, in terms of two events that sort of helped shape me, those are, are two of the biggest ones for me. Um, you mentioned about feeling alone. Did you actually feel alone or was that more of a state of mind? It was a combination of both. My father passed when I was eight through alcohol poisoning and mum was an absolute soldier for the next four years trying to do her best. Uh, but I largely learned what I did uh, about the world through experiences at that point um, in every facet. And um, the home wasn't always a pleasant place to be. We we had no power often. I I think at 11, read the Bible six times in, in six months because we had no, no, no power. Uh, so no TV and no hot water. And so I often didn't spend a lot of time at home. I spent it out in, in the area. And they say every child um, is raised by a village. And I was certainly raised by the village of people around me. But I never truly felt a, a sense of belonging, actually, to any one group of people. I felt often left alone. And that I suppose that was my earliest perception, is that people didn't necessarily care for who I was, but for what I did. And so I created a life of productivity and producing stuff. Being authentically you, what has that meant to you over the years? It's been the understanding, actually, that I don't have to be this material version that I I kind of grew up wanting to achieve. I, I grew up chasing um, riches and money because for me it meant stability in a world that I just never had. Being authentically me for me um, has been a growing process and one where I get to, to not be the guy who always produces stuff. I don't necessarily have to be a superstar or have to be achieving things continuously and feel okay to still be loved and worth something. And that's, um, that's actually been a, a great insecurity of mine. Has it been easy for you to be authentically you? Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. I, it sounds quite um, cynical, actually, but I have a, a genuine distrust of, of people most of the time. I've learned to trust myself a lot, and so, so trusting others has, has been quite difficult. I always have a plan B in case people don't follow up on their word, and that anything that people actually deliver for me has always been a, a sense of a bonus rather than an expectation. Uh, in terms of being authentically me, if you were to ask eight different people who Nick Reed is, you'd probably get eight different answers and they would all be true. I'm all of those things and they just happen to be different faces that I tend to flex at different times. Where did that not trust of others come from? Probably, I, I believe that the distrust of, of others really just came from being let down over and over again. Now, I was like many young Māori men, the kid who when he fell over wasn't uffied or picked up and, and patted on the back saying that things are going to be okay. It was... Um, no, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about uh, type thing. And, and as a result, I never learned to self-soothe. No, I learned very quickly that that was going to get me nowhere and to deal with my emotions um, that essentially people aren't going to, to care. And, and so that's, that's actually something that I'm trying to manage and work myself through because it's not, um, it's not actually that helpful when you're a bit older. Self-soothe, what does that mean? It's an ability to, to actually control and handle your emotions there's an ability for people to, to experience emotions and then at the end of that come out of it, whether it's anger or sadness or, or anxiety, and then be like, oh, but it's okay. I'm going to be okay. And then move forward. 
that self-soothing process doesn't happen for me. I actually go straight into fight, flight or freeze. And so I get very angry and confrontational. I then, um, you know, to cover my pain or my hurt, I then try to, to run away and, and isolate myself and get away from people. And the next experience or stage for me is numbness. And anytime someone kind of breaks into my space or to my whole life, whether it's supportive or not, I perceive that as a threat. And, um, and I'm starting to learn actually that that's not all that useful and that it's okay to, to be helped by people. And now I mentioned earlier that you're about to be a father for the first time. What type of father do you want to be? I think ultimately I would like to be the father that I wish I had when I was a kid. One who, who comes to the rugby games and, and stands on the sideline. The father who's, I suppose it's more about time and, and caring than anything else. I would like my child to see me as dependable and as supportive, um, regardless of what it is they choose to pursue. And I suppose my job is to create opportunities to empower them to pursue whatever it is that they want to. So who has shaped your view of fatherhood? Probably the earliest shape of what it means to be a man, actually, is, is probably a better descriptor for me, was my older brother. And he's 10 years older than me. And when I was a kid, uh, I just saw the way that people treated him. Um, you know, he was young, good-looking, athletic, and just seemed to be able to achieve what he set his mind to. Um, he was the first example of someone that I could resonate with who had gotten himself out of poverty through his own hard work, being very successful in a Western sense. But probably what I was most attracted to was the way that people interacted and treated him. Uh, and it was with great respect. And he was really tough, but he was also you know, kind and caring and his ability to contribute back to the whānau is something that has made him uh, a leader. And although we didn't have a strong relationship uh, when I was a kid and it didn't develop till I was um, a little bit older, he did it mostly just through his role modelling. Within the Waikato area, there are a number of organisations that are supporting men in their journey. One of these organisations is the Male Support Services of Waikato. The founder and manager of the organisation is Mike Holloway. And he's here to share with us what their services is all about. I started because there's no support for uh, fellas out there. Everything was pretty much perpetrator-based. Being a survivor myself, I had to go through the ropes with my family. And we were virtually asked to set something up. 2008 uh, was when we registered the trust. At the beginning, it was just myself. And it was just one-on-one with other survivors. And virtually walking some of the journey with them. There's guys who have been uh, sexually abused as kids or at some stage in life. And we're not talking about perpetrators, we're talking about uh, victims. The trust has really grown, so we do still do the one-on-ones. We've got three or four groups going. We also support the families. Uh, we do social work. We do anything that will move the guy forward, court work, anything. It's growing, so we're getting about two and a half referrals a day. So, so we're looking at perhaps a new building. I uh, want to grow the work in prisons. We extended it from sexual abuse to physical, mental, emotional and domestic abuse. So we need to try and hook them with the DHB, schools, etc. and look at Kaupapa Maria. If a guy wants some support here in the Waikato, Hamilton uh, region, how do they get in contact with you? We don't have a lot of paperwork for referrals, so it's just a phone call or an email or a text or on the website. Just a quick notification and we'll contact them and then we'll sort it out from there. We'll make it as easy as possible www.waikatasurvivors.org.nz 0800-677-289 The trust is a taonga for our men of the Waikato and what we're trying to do is saying Waikato look after their men. 
The website again is waikatsosurvivors.org.nz and their number is 0800 Kilda, welcome back to the Becoming Tiny Podcast. In your work history, you identified as being a professional uh, footballer. Mm. Uh, we played rugby league for Sydney Roosters and Cronulla Sharks. Tell me about that experience. And did you achieve all that you wanted to in your football career? They were some of the best years of my life, actually. And in fact, I've got um, some tattoos on my ribs uh, from a couple of those league clubs, um, the Sharks, the Redcliffe Dolphins and the Arara Valley X-Men because they were, to me, like my whānau, um, where I, I felt like I transitioned uh, into a man. The Sydney Roosters was a... I, I spent some time at both of these at, uh, at under-20s level and trained with the first-grade squad at the Sydney Roosters, and I'd gone from pushing trolleys six months earlier and playing club rugby league as a 17-year-old to riding in a Porsche with Anthony Minicello back to the train station um, you know, and, and he was one of my favourite players. I'd watched him play for Australia and New South Wales six months earlier. Um, and all of a sudden, I was sitting in his car. And it was a real shock to the system. I went from being this, um, by this stage, 18-year-old young Māori boy, standing in a team full of stars, playing next to Mitchell Pearce and telling um, guys like Anthony Tupo and stuff like that where to, where to run around. And, um, and I, I, I was too starstruck. I saw these guys as something probably beyond human, you know, these superstars with superpowers. And, uh, and I really struggled actually to, to rein in my awe of them. And that was ultimately what um, led me to, to not getting my contract renewed at the Sydney Roosters. I, um, I really struggled to, to feel like I was part of the team. I felt like an outsider and, and almost as if I had imposter syndrome. And so I, I left, um, went back to club rugby league and got another shot with the Cronulla Sharks actually the following year. And that was mostly in the around a 20 side. And at that time for a, a young man who had gone from pushing trolleys and, and earning nothing to earning a little bit of money um, and hanging around with NRL footballers, I, I quickly got swept up in the lifestyle actually of, um, of drugs, alcohol and womanizing and, and had nobody to, to really keep me grounded. And ultimately I continued to lose this battle I tried for a few more years to, to really crack on um, professionally and my second chance was playing Queensland Cup for one of the Broncos, Brisbane Broncos feeder clubs, the Redcliffe Dolphins. And gradually what I learned is that I was just on a conveyor belt of really talented players trying to crack it. And for every 25 that are in the under-20s, only two of them will go on to play NRL. And so I ended up accepting, not straight away, but accepting that I was one of the 23 who never would. And that was partly why I moved back to New Zealand to do a sports science degree. Did I achieve everything in the game? I think I put myself in the best position to achieve as much as I could. But talent you know, sort of only gets you so far. And when it got to the big leagues, I actually found that I was lacking in a lot of the areas that really mattered. And when you're athletic and young, I carved up with, uh, against normal club players. But, but when you're, you're 78 kilos playing against guys who are 100, 110, uh, built with lean muscle, you know, you lose that battle physically every day of the week. And, um, and I didn't quite have the skill set to make that next step. So awesome experience, but, um, but now I'm, I'm really sort of pleased with, with how it all went and I don't have any regrets whatsoever. Now, I believe that we're all born with a superpower. You know, I define a superpower as a, a particular skill 
ability or attribute that makes you you. It's your secret source. It's what people remember about you. So my question to you is, Nick, what is your superpower? Probably the, the most fascinating thing about this is other people would say different things. They might say that one of my greatest superpowers is that I just seem to be really good at everything. You know, one of those annoying kids that seems to win at athletics and swimming and chess. And it's kind of annoying that they always win everything. You know, I was, I was that kid. But what people don't sort of see is, is actually that behind or the driving reason behind the reason why I tended to win a lot of things was that I grew up in a world of poverty and I avoided being at home and I spend a lot of time behind the scenes in the dark just working on whatever I can um, to be to be good at everything so I probably I, I believe there's two things that I, I actually genuinely think I'm pretty good at and one of them is is an ability to withstand or tolerate suffering uh, I find myself to be one of the hardest workers in the room because I'm prepared to sit there and tolerate it more than others and the other one's actually a, a general knack for efficiency I find that um, no matter the situation, I can walk into a room and find very quickly uh, more efficient ways to make things happen, whether it's on a sporting field or whether it's in a business sense. I did speak to your wife about her thoughts towards your superpower. She actually gave me three. And this is what she said about your superpower. Uh, she said, Nick has a gift of inspiring and motivating others. She said that others that know her before she was with you and know her now would say she is a completely different person. And she says she is a different person because you have a lot to do with it. You are very driven and that inspires her and motivates her to be driven as well. So that's the first one. The second superpower, she says, is that you are like a sponge for information. And whether it is information from books or podcasts, you just soak it all up. When you study, you're an A student, you absorb everything, and you are a wealth of information. The last one, she says, is that it's about your openness and honesty. You have taken a number of journeys in your life that other men may not be open to and you are not afraid to take those journeys and you're not afraid to tell others about them and this openness is inspiring for her so that's what she sees in you you see something different in what your superpower that of suffering and that of being able to nail things down is quite different to what she sees you as why do you think the difference i think probably the biggest difference is is that i internalize um, all my motivations for doing things are, are probably something that nobody sees and that that the observable behaviors or the actions that come about are actually what people see and, and may probably remember me by and so they'll see what the end consequences without actually the the reason behind why i do them in your LinkedIn page, it said the following thing about you. You empower everyday people develop well-being strategies. What does that mean? <laughs> it was a great uh, attractive tagline, actually, to, <laughs> to let people um, that I don't quite know how to articulate or summarize what it is that I do. 
but if I was to, to try and explain it, I, I'm really, really big on, on holistic well-being. And that's just the, you know, everything ranging from um, you know, your spiritual self, uh, particularly the Te Whare Tapawha model, because it's easy to follow. And I have, I suppose I've enjoyed the journey of learning uh, largely about myself and uh, the strategies that work for, for me. And uh, a lot of that has actually been you know, through Te Tahatinana, or the physical realm. And that is you know, the controlling of my physical activity. Um, the nutrition, the, all of the things that I can directly control um, when I go to bed, what it is that I put in my body. And in terms of, of trying to find sort of happiness or holistic well-being, there's a lot of people out there searching for something. And I find that there are just some things that I can resonate with and relate to. And I can teach people or show people the way for them to help themselves if they're open and it's open to accepting um, particular methods now certainly no guru particularly um, when it comes to intrinsic uh, motivational health but i do know a number of quick tools to get quick quick wins and quick successes to hopefully help people get started on their own journeys and pathways what is vulnerability for me vulnerability is a it's a sacred place where you will let out your emotions with the people you trust around you so it's quite a sacred area for men in particular. Vulnerable is um, when you let your guard down and you allow some other people to see your weaknesses. Vulnerability for me is someone that places themselves in that space or that, that state of being with the intention to either want help for themselves or wanting to give help to others by being vulnerable. Uh, to me, I, I get the greatest joy in helping others, but uh, one thing I really struggle with is being helped. Um, so that's when I'm vulnerable to me is when I'm actually willing to allow, allow someone else to help me. Um, it's going to sound bad, but I don't think I know what that means in this context. To me, it's a weakness. To me, it's an area of your life that you need to shore up and strengthen. To me, it means mental strength, being able to lay bare all your darkest moments. Vulnerability to me is true power. What is your definition of vulnerability? Over the last few weeks, you know, the whole 25 push-up challenge has been going crazy crazy in social media and i see you finally got the nomination i really enjoyed your post uh, about your reasoning behind being involved in it why did you feel i need to provide an explanation yeah it's it's actually something i've been nominated in um for a wee while now about four weeks ago and something that i've avoided partly because i don't like buying into um chain <laughs> trends but also because it's a, a topic that was quite sensitive to me because I was going through my own health challenges at the time, uh, particularly around anxiety and, and depression, and have since been medicated. Uh, but finally, someone who I, I truly respect and spent a lot of time in the middle of a rugby league field with nominated me, and I, I felt obliged, actually, to do something because you know, he had called me out. And what I realized, actually, is I'm not or never had been sure how the 25 push-ups itself directly relates to mental health awareness. But I do know there's a couple of things that really helped during my journey. And 
and when I was feeling alone in the dark, and there's that, that sort of terminology again, feeling alone, uh, there were a couple of things that helped pull me out, at least to a state where I was willing to ask for help. And one of those was my wife caring for me for, for several days, actually, and eventually just coming and hugging me without expectation of anything in return. That was enough to open up to my brother. And then him giving me a, a little bit of information about how he's dealt with things in the past. And all of a sudden, I didn't feel alone. And so it was a, a quick reach out to those who are struggling just to say, hey, you know, I, I'm aware that I'm someone who is fairly influential in our community. And I think everybody's aware that we have the highest suicide rates in the world. And it's particularly prevalent in Māori. It's not enough to, to make uh, people aware. We're already aware let's be proactive if we if we truly care and, and, and just reach out and try and reach out in a way that doesn't come across as condescending. You opened up to your brother. And what happened when you did open up to him? He had messaged me the day before. And something I, I suppose that people need to realise is if you're struggling with anxiety, is you avoid texts, phone calls, and you actually isolate yourself. You avoid people because you're scared that they'll see you. And uh, And so I ignored his message. Until the following day, I had made a promise to my wife that I would at least reach out and try to pull myself out. And, uh, and so I texted him and I said, uh, actually, bro, I'm, I'm not doing too well. I've been going through a really rough time. And, um, but I've decided to, to seek out some professional help. And his message back was, hey, here's some of the things that I've experienced. And it felt like he was telling me my own life story. And I think the most valuable words at the back end of it were that I love you, bro, and I'm, I'm really proud of you. And uh, A, I didn't feel alone, and B, um, when he told me that he loved me and that he was proud of me, it's, it's one of those things that uh, I've struggled to hear throughout my life. And I think actually that most men struggle to hear. We, we certainly don't tell each other enough that we are proud of each other for really basic things. And so that was, um, that was a big, big one. You brought up. Earlier, when you were younger, that you, you like read the Bible six times in six months. Are you still quite spiritual in a formal religious sense? I'm just spiritual. I've always admired actually religion because of the, the let's say the certainty and faith that, that people have. It's like a sense of higher calling. And that when I suppose one of the things that I've, I've loved is that when people face adversity, what do you do and how do you overcome this? And they're just, particularly because a, a couple of influential family members, friends, um, believe wholeheartedly in, in the Lord, they kind of just be like, it's okay because my purpose is to serve you know, God and, and my purpose is this, or I may not know what my purpose yet or what I'm suffering for currently, but I'm sure that I'll learn in, in time. And um, the certainty that you get sort of from religion is is fantastic. And I think spirituality has has been um, something that I have really kind of struggled to really comprehend and understand. And uh, over time, I, I it kind of started for me as who am I? What is my identity? When I'm not my work and I'm not a footballer and I'm not these things, who am I? And um, and that kind of gave me uh, some, some starting points or some insights uh, to really reconnect actually with my whenua and to start going back to Turotuki because I started to realize no matter which way I ran from it, I always felt disconnected and I, I needed to, to reconnect. And the only way that I would begin to feel like a, like I was home 
would be to visit so often, actually, that I stopped feeling like a visitor. Why did you feel that you ran from your from your Māori side? Yeah, I think this is actually a really common one for a lot of uh, Māori men who aren't um, necessarily connected to their to their whenua or to their marae. But for me, it was the fact that I, I can't speak te reo Māori, not fluently, and so I couldn't meaningly contribute to things happening back home. The older I got and the less time I spent back in Ruatuki, the tougher it got for me to feel comfortable. I missed the stages in life when you're a young boy and you're shown how to be a, a man on the marae. And as I got older and older and all my material success increased and improved and became my armour, it actually made me more and more aware that I was even more vulnerable when I went home because people actually from our marae and from our whānau don't care about the flash car that I drive, uh, how much money I earn uh, and all those Western methods of, of success. It's actually about how much you contribute back to your whānau and, uh, and what are you doing? Now you earn respect by cleaning the toilets and, um, and looking after your manuhiri. And, and I was doing none of that. And so all of a sudden, you know, in this world where I was quite successful, you know, the Western world, I was afraid of going back to, um, to the Māori world or te ao Māori and being nothing or nobody. And so I, I avoided it for a long, long time. shop. It's a mobile barber service. Uh, I started by cutting my, my son's hair from a very early age and I uh, just wanted to be better at it. And it wasn't until my good wife said, hey, you better go get your tohu. So he sent me off to Auckland. My passion is to help people. So um, I've developed business that um, that I can sort of go out and help people. So I went into the local kura and um, plucked a couple of boys out who sort of didn't have a passion of being in school. I gave them a go and then um, I, I sort of taught them not, not only to cut hair, feel confident in cutting hair, but it's more so uh, the conversations you have with people that come into your seat. Um, if you can hold a genuine conversation with your customers, then you're winning at the barber game. A lot of people think if you can cut hair, then you, you're an awesome barber. The reason why I did start a barber business because um, I wanted something that target fathers, young men, to come into this profession and sort of hold their hand in the business sector and coach them through that side while they enjoyed cutting hair and still still living that dream. My first week I opened up in Hamilton, I had people come in at um, 11 o'clock and not leave until 3 o'clock, just come in and just um, talk about anything really. Just through experience, um, I've come to the conclusion that there's times to speak and there's times to listen. It's that art of being able to, to read that situation. I have one in Hamilton, and that's just freshly um, opened up. So we're, we're parked outside the Melville Club Rooms on Collins Road. I aim to have more of those in the Hamilton region um, by the end of this year. The other one is down in Whitehall. It's in the Hawke's Bay. So that one just like goes all day, non-stop. My barbershop model is a lot different to other barbershops that I see out there now. I'm really here to to help others because I really, really feel that if I help someone else and they succeed, then I succeed. And when I succeed, they succeed. And I can genuinely say that too. Uh, so um, if anyone's out there who wants to, to um, and interested, then, then come and hit me up. You're listening to the Becoming Tiny podcast. Welcome back. I believe that life is one of our greatest teachers. So with that being said, 
Now, what has life taught you so far? I think probably um, a quote that I read in a book recently sums it up for me pretty well. And and that's actually that uh, the solution to a problem is the creation of another. And, uh, And that life is actually just full of problems. And that when we solve these problems, we get happiness. But we only get happiness from the problems that we choose. And so I've come to the realization, actually, that happiness isn't actually a destination, that no materialistic thing can help me uh, feel happiness, that I'll get my happiness from creating these problems. And it's an ongoing, um, infinite cycle. And when you at least get to choose your, your pain or your suffering, because you get to solve this problem, at the end of it, the payoff is worth it. If the listeners were to take one message away from our corridor today, what would you want them to take away? Usually I'm a, I'm a practical man. And so I would say if you could take one thing away from this, uh, it would be something that you could apply virtually straight away. And, and the thing that I would say um, that has helped me a lot, actually, in terms of my intellectual and, and intellectual growth or sense of well-being is actually audible. <laughs> I would say download audible or download a podcast, a couple of referrals I've got. Um, one of them I spoke about sort of pre-show was the seven habits of highly effective people. And if it's about career or if it's just about being or wanting to be a better person in general and finding some metrics to measure yourself and coming up with a better way of being, then that is an absolute pearler of a book. So the name of the podcast is called Becoming Tani. And I named it Becoming Tani for a couple of reasons. One, Tani Mahucha's desire to learn and grow. And two, because Tane is the Māori translation for male or man or husband. So with that being said, in your opinion, what does it mean to become a man? I think when it comes to man, it's, a, it's about going through a journey uh, and discovering actually what kind of man it is that you want to be and what values actually that you, that you live and you want to be true to. Uh, my version of, of what it means to be a man is, is to be four different things. and that, That's to be a warrior. Uh, a lover, a uh, a magician or a joker, and um, and also a king, you know, and a, a good king. Um, all four of those those different things kind of make me up, and and I would love my my children to to say um, or to think of me as you know the the kind and caring and loving man that they feel comfortable um, to be vulnerable with and to speak to, a sense of stability, and a, a pillar of um of strength within my whanau. Just following up on that. Those four divisions of being a man, did you get that from anywhere? Yeah, yep. Actually, there's um, an author, a Catholic author actually called Richard Raw, who, who talks about essentially the, the different components of man. And those are four of the components. And each of those are representative within us. Um, but we can decide which version of those we are. There's a light and a dark to each of them. And, you know, you can be a, a really strong and good king and worthy leader. Uh, but you can also be a tyrant. And we have both equal opportunity to, to travel down both roads. But where we end up is, is ultimately and can be decided by us. Thanks, Nick. I really, really appreciate your time. I really appreciate the insight that you've given us today. I wish you all the best on your journey. I wish you all the best on, on becoming a father um, and becoming the, the leader that you want, want to be. So, kia ora. Ngā Awesome. Thank you, Appa. Thank you to all. I would like to thank everyone for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate your support and kind words. I'm so proud that we've been able to make it to the end of season one. 
I would really like to thank the men who I interviewed this season for the podcast, Johnny Gillette, Matt Tabram, Tabai Madsen, Watson Ohia, Ezra Hidawani, Seth Haynes, and today, Nick Reed. I feel privileged that you trusted me, a novice, to share some of your story. I would like to also give a big thank you to Aaron Moike and Kano Sadler for editing and providing the music for my podcast. I'd like to also recognise Simon Kepa and Jeff Savali who have supported me with this podcast. I'd also like to recognise the Hui Order team, Tuihana Ohia, Nina Keitane and Che Wilson. Finally, last but not least, uh, my wife and my kids, Gail, Aroha, Apanui, Tipini and to Rose. Please remember the website of the Becoming Tane podcast is www.becomingtane.men. Our email is info at becomingtane.men. Our handle on Facebook and Instagram is at becomingtane. And for the final time this season, please subscribe and tell your whanau and friends that you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and iHeartRadio. Mauri Ora.